0: Last week, we were in James chapter 4, and we ended in verse uh, 6, which says this, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Today, we're going to hear from James about how we can humble ourselves before the Lord. What does it mean to humble ourselves before the Lord? And it, it means to uh, submit ourselves to God in three areas. That first, we would submit to God uh, with respect to our sin. Second, that we would, res- would, we would uh, submit to God with respect to our relationships with other people. And finally, that we would submit to God with respect to our relationship with the future. And so if you would begin with me as we read uh, James chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinner, and purify your hearts, you double-minded Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Notice how he begins here in, in verse seven, that we are to submit ourselves to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. God gives grace. To the humble and for us to be humble, it means that we are submitting to him. We acknowledge that he is the sovereign creator of all things, that he is the Lord, ruler over the universe. And we are willfully uh, submitting to him, willingly submitting to him. That's what he's talking about here, that we would submit ourselves to him. And the first thing then that we must do, he says, is to resist the devil And he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Notice this contrast that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us, and if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. So we have one that if we resist them, they will flee, and the other that if we draw near to them, uh, they will draw near to us. And we have this inverse relationship, right? That, That the more we draw near to God, the more the devil will flee from us. And the more that we uh, lean in toward the devil, the further we get from God. We have this inverse relationship between the two. And so what he's saying here is that we need to repent. We need to repent of our worldly uh, devil following ways. To turn away from that, to turn around and face a different direction. To face the Lord instead and draw in near to him. Because who is it that you want fleeing from you and who is it that you want drawing near to you? I mean, that should be an obvious answer to that, right? Well, I would much rather have God be drawing near to me and the devil fleeing than the other way around. And so if that's what we want, then what we have to do is we have to resist the devil, turn away from his stuff and turn toward the Lord instead. And as we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. Here's, here's what I want you to do for a moment. Right right where you are, right now, I want you to just turn and face a window or face a door. Turn, turn and, and just face out and look through that window or, or imagine what's on the other side of that door. What's out there? What are you seeing out there? What's out there that has you excited? That, that gets you going, that you just get really excited about? What's out there that, that gets you excited? What's, what's out there that you're nervous about? What's out there that you're scared of? What's out there that's stressing you out? What's out there that just, the idea of it makes you really happy? That out there, that's the realm of the devil out there. Those are the things that He wants you to be thinking about. Those are the things that He wants you to be desiring. Those are the things that He wants you to be fearing. those things that are out there. Now now turn, turn back and, and face me and, and lean in, lean in close as we uh, hear now from the words of God, right? Because as we draw in near to him, he is going to be drawing near to us. And here's what he says. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Those are attacking words. James is coming right after us. He's going, look, you guys are sinners. You're double-minded. The fact that I even have to say, resist the devil and his schemes, resist the devil and his ways, and draw near to God. The fact that I even have to to say that highlights the double-mindedness within you. In fact, he's been talking about double-mindedness since James chapter 1, verse 8. Back when he was talking about how unstable we are in all of our ways, we who are double-minded. As we are inclined toward worldly things and also desiring the things of God. We can't have both of those things. We have to let go of one and focus only on the other. We need to be cleansed and purified from this double-minded, sin-inclined, devil-inspired ways. And we're given a clear understanding of how we might do this, how we might be purified of this double-mindedness, purified of this sin that distances us and um, puts us at odds with God rather than in close relationship with him. In in Hebrews chapter 9, the author is is explaining about the Old Testament and is is, uh, highlighting for us how the law of Moses worked and how uh, Moses gave the law to the people and how they, they would then sprinkle with blood to cleanse everything. Right? So, that, so that they would, would sprinkle the blood, that they would sacrifice the animal, they would sprinkle the blood and it would cleanse the holy place. And they would make offerings for the priests so that they would be cleansed from their sins. So then the, the priests could enter into the holy places so that they could offer sacrifices on behalf of the people to make atonement for their sins so that they could be cleansed and purified. And so this is all being explained in, in Hebrews chapter 9. And so in uh, verse 13 of, G- of Hebrews chapter 9, it says this, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of, of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He's saying, look, we have Jesus who has given his life. He has become a sacrifice for us in the same way that blood had to be shed to purify all of those uh, holy objects and people. In the same way Jesus has uh, sacrificed himself, he has given his life so that we might be cleansed. Indeed, he goes on in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, "...indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these." That is to say, these things, when they were talking about purifying the temple and the priests being cleansed of their sins so that they could enter the holy places to, cleanse, uh, to make sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of the people, those were all ca- uh, copies, imitations, uh, images of heavenly spiritual realities taking place here on the earth. It was so that they could see in tangible ways that their sin required payment, and that payment came in the form of life. The lifeblood had to be shed in payment for sins that were committed against God. But while those are just images and copies of spiritual realities, The heavenly reality is that Christ came to make this one time sacrifice so that it would take care of this in the real way, not just in a a, um, illustrative way, but in a real way, his sacrifice would wash away the blood, the, the sins of people with his blood. So that in verse 26, it says, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So if we think back now uh, to James chapter 4, verse 8, it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cleanse your hands, this because we are sinners. So because we are sinners, we have to be cleansed and purified. And this happens, Hebrews 9 tells us, through the sacrifice of Jesus, who one time, being God and man, his life was, uh, sacrificed on our behalf, washed away all of the sins, in a one-time very real sacrifice, that one-time atonement. So when it says that we need to be cleansed and purified, how do we do that? It is by believing that Jesus's one-time sacrifice cleanses us from the sins that we have committed the ways that we have rejected God, the ways that we have uh, put up idols or uh, priorities in God's place, this is the way that that is all dealt with and cleansed so that we can be brought into right relationship with God again, that we can be made righteous and restored in relationship with him so that when we draw near to him, he will in fact draw near to us. Not just because of what we do, not just because, oh, now we're inclined toward you, God. But because all of the things that we have done that were disinclined toward God and were instead following the ways of the devil, that has all been cleansed. And we have been made holy and righteous before God so that when we now lean in toward him, he leans in toward us. We can have a warm and rich relationship with him because we have been cleansed, washed of our sin. We, we have to uh, ask for the forgiveness of God. That we, the, we repent, right? We turn away from those things that we had done before. We turn away from all of those sins. We turn away from the devil. And we draw in toward God and we say, God, would you forgive me? I want to put all that stuff behind me Would you forgive me and draw me in close to you? And I claim the blood of Jesus to do this. Be wretched, it says in verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. When we recognize the depth of our sin, the ways in which we have rejected God and not followed his instructions, not, in, not followed his ways. It causes us to uh, be broken, to recognize the weight of our sin, and say, oh God, what have I done in turning away from you? Be wretched and mourn and weep. And let your laughter now be turned to mourning and let your joy now be turned to gloom. We have seen this before. James has often referenced the words of Jesus and here he seems to be referencing those words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. The same ideas Jesus preached in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit Sons of God. We we recognize that what it means for us to humble ourselves before the Lord is to submit to Him with respect to our sin and acknowledge that that which is not in line with His glory is sin. And we mourn for that and we weep for that and we repent. Of it, So that we might ask forgiveness. Because if we don't weep and mourn now, we cannot receive the comfort of God and will weep and mourn later. If we do not now recognize the depth of our sin and say, oh God, what have I done? Then when we come to the end of time, when Christ returns to that final judgment... At that point, we will say, oh God, what have I done? There will be weeping and mourning. But, if instead we humble ourselves before the Lord, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. All of this to say that that we ought to humbly come before God recognizing, acknowledging, confessing our sin, repenting of it so that then He might lift us up. It takes a lot of humility to confess our sin. It takes a lot of humility to admit that we have been wrong. But there is so much freedom when we do. The alternative is to try and Uh, prop ourselves up, to either perform up to standard or else make excuse and justify our bad behavior. But when we come in with this approach, when we come humbly before him and submit with respect to our sin, we can confess the sin before him, weep and mourn that we have done it, but be exalted by him, lifted up, having been washed clean by the blood of Jesus, cleansed from our sin and purified. And he exalts us. How much freedom is there in that? Because he is the one lifting us up. We no longer have to do that. Those of us who weep and mourn now will receive the comfort of God. And in those last days when Jesus comes again, we expect to be joyful at his return and and experience eternity in right relationship with God. Even if we spend the entire life now weeping and mourning, it will pale in comparison to the glory of God and everlasting eternal relationship with him. So we submit to God. But we submit to God not merely for uh, the cleansing of our past sins. But also now, because we have been cleansed by him, it changes the way in which we relate to other people. So that James goes on to say in verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. This speaking against, is, is a, it's a criticizing. It's a slandering. Especially if you're doing this publicly or behind their back. Right? When, we, when we go and we um, are publicly slandering or criticizing somebody, it acknowledges that we don't have their best interest in mind. If we had their best interest in mind, we would be coming to them gently, compassionately, humbly to talk with them about what's happening here. Where do we feel like they have misstepped? How can we help move them forward? But when we're doing the public criticism or the -the behind-the-back talking, That has nothing to do with them. That has to do with us. We are admitting, whether we want to recognize it or not, we are admitting in our public display of uh, frustration or disbelief or criticism that it's about us. We are better than that. We would have done differently than that. They did not measure up to my standards. They were wrong because, and we want to shame them in a public way. Criticizing them in a public way or behind their back. Why are we doing that? We want to vent about it. We want to to, uh, just talk about it and put it out there. Because it makes me feel better about me. Because I'm irritated with it. But when we do that, James says, he says, Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. For the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. When we we are publicly criticizing or behind the back criticizing a person, rather than humbly, graciously coming up to them and talking with them about the issue... When we do that, we are standing in judgment over them. We are judging them. We are saying, this is the standard, you're not meeting it. And when we do that, we are not only judging them, but we stand as judges over the law as well. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. What are we talking about here? Specifically, we're talking about the instructions of Moses, right? That the laws that were given by God to his people on how they ought to live and worship him. And so you see those in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy in particular. But more generally speaking, we're talking about the entire instruction from God to his people. All of the scriptures that speak to us about how we ought to live our lives in light of who God is as sovereign over all of creation and how we ought to worship and glorify him. That's the law. That's the instruction to us. God's word to us. But if you judge the law, he goes on to say, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law but a judge of the law. That is to say, when we are criticizing somebody else or slandering somebody else and we're saying, here is the measurement and here is the standard and you are not meeting the standard, that standard is something that I am identifying and saying, this is it. This is the measure. This is the standard that is not being met. I am creating then the law. I am identifying these are the rules and standards by which you, whoever it is that I'm judging, must meet. Therefore, I am the one that's setting that up. Rather than following the instructions of God in how we ought to live and how we ought to worship him, and coming up to the person gently and humbly to help them also follow the instructions of God. Instead, I am um, judging the the law of God, the instructions of God, by setting up my own standard and saying, no, no, not that, rather this. This is the standard. And you are not meeting it. This is not to say that we should uh, have no discernment or that we shouldn't evaluate whether or not things are measuring up to the instructions of God. But rather, how do we respond when we recognize things that are out of sync? And what is my personal response, both emotionally and in action or in word? How do I respond when I see somebody that I don't think is following the the ways of God? Am I frustrated about that? Am I annoyed about that? Am I angry about that? Or do I recognize that there is a brokenness there? That they need to be cleansed, purified, sanctified by the blood of Jesus. That they need to resist the devil and turn and draw near to God so that God will draw near to them. Is my heart beating with compassion for this person who is not drawing near to God and is my desire to help them in any way that I can to do that? To turn away from their sin and lean in. And if that is my desire, then there is no place for me to stand as judge over them. Recognizing that I have come to to God in the same way, through the blood of Jesus, through his compassion and grace, through his sacrifice, this is how I have come. There is no other way. And so I I measure it according to uh, the instructions of God. But if I am using my own standards, then I am cozying up with the devil. If I'm imposing the standards and judging people and slandering them and criticizing them publicly, according to my standards, I'm using the schemes, the motives, the purposes and methodologies of the devil I need to submit to God in this area and not act as a judge either of my brother or sister or uh, of the law, but rather recognize that they also are made, created in the image of God and that I am a doer of the law, not a judge of the law. For he says, verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? There is only one who has given the law. God has given those instructions. And there is only one who can save. Jesus, God and man who has given his life for us. He is the only one. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, further down in the Sermon on the Mount at verse 17, he sa- Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. God has given us his instruction on how we ought to live in light of who he is and how we ought to worship and glorify him, and we have broken that law. And Jesus has stepped in. He perfectly fulfilled the law, living exactly the life that would glorify God to the fullest, submitting himself to the Father in every aspect, Even to the point of death on a cross. So that you and I might have our sins paid for by his blood. And then he rose again from the dead that he might be judge over the living and the dead. And so now we should humble ourselves before the Lord by submitting to him. by repenting of our sins, by not judging our brothers, but rather by seeking their reconciliation with God as well. And finally, we should submit to God with respect to how we think about the future. Verse 13 says this, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I want you to turn again and and look out that door or window. What's out there? What's out there in your future? What do you see in your future? What do you get excited about that you see coming? What are you worried about or nervous about? What do you think might go well? What are you afraid of? Okay, now turn back. How are you thinking about that future? Admittedly, uh, due to COVID, we are much better at this than we used to be. We are holding the future more loosely than we used to hold it. We don't have an expectation. They've been disappointed too many times where we thought we were going to do this and then we couldn't because guidelines changed or something else changed. People didn't follow through. And so we recognize the reality that the future is tenuous and we can't count on it. We knew that to be the case before, but now we feel like that's really settled into our brains that I have no idea what to expect in the next week, two weeks, and six months from now, forget it no clue what's going to be coming. The issue for us is not the reality of whether or not the future is tenuous. The the issue for us is rather our attitude toward it. Because much as I might think that I am good at this now because of COVID and I don't hold anything tightly, I hold everything with an open palm. Yet how is my attitude with respect to those things? What is my attitude when my business gets closed down? Or when my employment status changes? What is my attitude when the guidelines change again? What is my attitude when the family gathering doesn't look like I expected it to or can't happen at all? Am I frustrated? Am I angry? Am I despairing of ever hoping that anything could ever happen again in the future? If that's the case, then we are not holding the future loosely at all, actually. We recognize the reality, but we're frustrated with that reality because our plans are not being met We can't do what we had thought we would do. And that's not what James is talking about here. When he says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. He says, what you ought to say, verse 15, is if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, we will do this or we will do that. It's not just that we will hold it loosely with a fatalistic, whatever will be, will be, or in the more common now, whatevs. Rather, what we're talking about here is that the Lord, uh, we say, if the Lord wills it, we will do this. It's not anti-planning. He's not saying, don't make plans about the future because you don't know what's going to happen. He's saying, make plans for the future in light of who God is and in light of his glory. For the sake of his glory. That's how we make plans about the future. If the Lord wills, we will do this. If the Lord wills, we will go to such and such a town and we will do these things. Because he is God and for the sake of his glory. And we will recognize that if we cannot do those things, if somehow that future that we have envisioned in our mind, that God-glorifying future, if something about that changes, we recognize that God is still sovereign, God is still faithful, and whatever those results will be will glorify him all the more. And so when those plans get changed, we say, yes, God, what are you going to do now? And I have to say, that has not been my attitude. Recently, as plans have been changed over and over again, and I recognize that they are my plans, and I'm frustrated that they're not happening. Every time I make plans, we don't get to do them. I'm making the wrong plans. God, what are our plans for today? What are our plans for next week? And we make those plans and we hope that they will honor God and then we recognize that if they get changed, that's okay. We will yet praise God in the new circumstances that we were not even expecting It's not anti-planning. It's not anti-business. This isn't, James isn't criticizing here the fact that they are planning to go here or there or make a profit. It's not anti-travel. It's just saying that in everything that you are considering about the future, consider how is this in, in response to God's instruction and how will this glorify him? And then hold it in such a way that you expect that it will glorify him when you get there. As it is, he says, verse 16, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James just lays it all out for us. He's been laying it out for us. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Submit to him. Submit to God with respect to your sin by repenting of it, by resisting the devil and drawing near to God. Submit to God in your relationships with other people by not judging them. Submit yourself to God with regard to the future in not being arrogant about what will happen, but rather anticipating that what will happen in the future will bring glory to God. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon put it this way, If you will not submit, your faith is a lie, your hope is a delusion, your prayer is an insult, your peace is a presumption, and your end will be despair. Today, we remember that all of this is only possible because of the sacrifice of Jesus As we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 26 to 28, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We humble ourselves before him now, expecting a glorious return and a great joy when he comes back. We're now going to celebrate communion together, so if you'd take that out and prepare it. We want to remember that we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And we want to reaffirm our expectation that we have an eternal hope. In Him, As it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work within us, helping us to submit to you as Jesus submitted to you, that we might submit to you in all things, that we might repent of our sin that we might not stand in judgment over our brothers and sisters, that we might not put too much hope in what we expect our future to hold. But rather, Father, would you help us to delight in you? Would you give us your joy and your peace as we are anxious or fearful or weep, or mourn. We ask for your comfort. And we expect that there is an imminent return of Jesus. And we will delight to see his return. And we will delight to spend time with you eternally and seeing you in your glory. Would you lift us up To that place with you, we ask in Jesus' name.